It is a privilege to be back with you this morning. I know that it's fall because of the drive out to Shavanaugh. It started, hasn't it? Um, I know it's a cliche, but fall is my favorite time of year. The bright, cool, kind of breezy days, and you can get into your car, and it's got that sort of pleasantly stuffy feeling in there. The humidity is low. It even smells great. That is, if you can get past the insanely high goldenrod pollen counts that stuff up your nose. I have always felt that the actual start of the year is fall. And I know that sounds strange, but school starts in the fall, and I was in school for far too long, and my wife works for the school district, and honestly, this year is very, very strange for me, because for the first time in like 20 years, we have no one in the West Aurora School District, except my wife, who works there, and it's just weird. But even though I don't have that aspect of the beginning of the year. October is wonderful because it is the start of hockey season, which in our household is momentous. If you are not a hockey fan, come to my house and you'll be entertained by watching my wife watch hockey. Okay, you would think that it would be me that would be the intense one, but my wife is Canadian. I was told the very first time I went to her hometown, this is Brantford, Ontario, the home of Wayne Gretzky, the Zamboni, and Alexander Graham Bell, in that order. Okay, that's what it is in our house. But for all of those beginnings, we know that fall marks an ending, right? It's clearly an ending. It's the end of warm weather. It's harvest time. The leaves on the trees die off. And that glorious fall color signals an end to the cycle. As Bill so eloquently showed last week, it leads to death. But somehow, fall strangely fits us, doesn't it? We break out the flannel and the sweaters and it feels good, even though we know that it's going to be short-lived and that pretty soon winter is coming. Fall is strange that way. Maybe bittersweet is a good word for it. And in many ways, that is the feeling of our passage this week in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. The, the past two weeks, we've been starting this journey through Ecclesiastes, chasing the vapor, the smoke, as Bill put it, of our lives through the eyes of Solomon. Looking at life under the sun, life on our own, apart from God. And Solomon has undertaken this experiment, experiment to understand life to pursue wisdom and pleasure, to see if the things that we have or work for can provide true meaning. And he has concluded that, no, this is all hebel, vapor. There, but insubstantial. Not so much meaningless, as some translations have it, but rather something we can't truly grab a hold of 
here today and gone tomorrow. Kind of like the fall. And that's where we are at this morning in chapter 3, starting in verse 1, where Solomon says, There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know there is nothing better for people than to be happy and do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken away from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever is has already been, and what has will have been, what will be has been before, and God will call the past into account. Would you pray with me? Father, (coughs) we thank you for this time of year that you've given to us. We thank you for the gift of coming to your church to worship you, to participate together. And now as we look at your word, we pray that we would see you more clearly. We would understand more clearly our lives and what you would have from us. And it is in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Time for everything. Last week, Bill ended by looking at death. That as Solomon reminds us, it's coming for all of us, no matter who we are, whether we're wise or fools. And this week, we continue that train of thought. If death is coming for us all, what does that say about here and now? As Solomon continues this journey to grasp the meaning of life in his own terms, he comes face to face with a conundrum. And the conundrum starts with our first point, which is that we see the transience of life all around us. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, are no doubt the most famous passage in this entire book. And some of you immediately know why. I was more than a little tempted to call this sermon, Turn, Turn, Turn. But when I was here a few weeks ago and played the theme from Cheers, we were setting that up, and Zach told me he had never heard it before. And that's 30 years ago. And so, tack on basically another 30 years, and I was like, oh, I might be pushing it a little bit here. You see, 
Pete Seeger wrote that song, stole it, really. He literally wrote six words. Everything else, maybe rearranged slightly, comes straight out of the King James. It's just rearranged a little. And the birds made it famous in 1965. Not quite 10 years after it was originally written. How many of you know the song I'm talking about? See? When you hear it, what do you feel? <laughs> Old. I like it. I think, I think that the word that best describes that song when most of us hear it is nostalgia. Right? It, it kind of feels that way. But that's not what Solomon is doing here. Solomon isn't nostalgic. He is taking a long, hard look at life. He's examining it. And if you look in your Bible, you'll see it's set off as poetry here. And that's what it is. Poetry to show us something important about life. And we have to be careful with poetry. Because most of us, we like to, to know what does it mean and have Nice, clear definitions. But poetry is not a proposition or an equation to be solved. That's not the way it works, right? It's a way of showing us something true that doesn't fit into our nice, neat categories. And i got to be honest, I like categories. They help me figure out where I stand right and and how I fit into the world but sometimes the categories that we have don't work and here Solomon is trying to evoke something not nostalgia but a recognition of truth of the transience of our lives of the way that life works but not only is this poetry it's also wisdom literature and it's important to remember that when we are dealing with wisdom literature in the Bible, it is often, usually, descriptive, not prescriptive. What do I mean? It means that it describes the way life is. It is not necessarily telling us the way it ought to be or what we should do. Okay? And we have to remember that when we're looking at wisdom literature. And verse 5 in our, our verse is a really good example of this when it talks about a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. And most of us look at that and go, what on earth is he talking about? Well, guess what? Most commentators say, what on earth is he talking about? We don't know. It could be, and there are guesses, it could be that it's about wealth. And it could refer to precious stones. Maybe, but not likely. Maybe it's a, combo, a combination of wealth and agriculture. You see, you're talking about the Middle East. And any fields that they have are strewn with stones. And you have to pull the stones out of the fields in order for them to work. And if you pitch stones into your neighbor's field, your enemy's field, maybe you are trying to do them harm. 
but it's really hard to know. The thing is, we really don't need to know the specifics of what that is about to see the whole of what Solomon's point is, because he's got 14 pairs of opposites here. And they are designed to show us the whole of life, its choices, its stages. He is observing the realities of life. He's not giving us marching orders. That's not what he's doing. Life is transient. Grasping at the wind, at vapor, or as Bill said last week, at smoke. And I've been thinking a lot about the transience of life lately, the stages, how it comes and goes so quickly. I told you, we don't have kids in the school system anymore. It seems that a week ago, I had babies in my house, like several of you. And now my last baby is in college. And this year, many of my high school classmates turned 50. And I think about the delight of new babies and realize that I've reached the stage in life where my peers are having grandchildren, that the nieces and nephews that I remember being born are having babies. Life is transient. And this past week, a week ago last Friday, an aunt of mine unexpectedly died. Then Ian pounded Florida. And last week too, my wife texted me that she had to take over for the teacher in her class one of the days this week because her best, this teacher's best friend had been calling her and finally she had to she got a text and her best friend's husband died in his sleep the night before. Yesterday I helped my dad work on the brakes on his car and I feel it this morning. The creaks of getting older, I feel the years speeding by and I know for a fact that life is vapor. And Solomon is giving us in this passage essentially a look at all the kinds of things life is made of. Birth and death frame it, but we grow and wither. We, we start things and harvest them. We love and hate, weep and laugh. We learn to search and when to stop searching any longer. When to speak and, frankly, when we need to shut up. But verses 9 and 10... What do workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden God has laid upon the human race. Remind us of last week. What do we get from our toil? <clears throat> that sounds a lot like chapter 2, verses 17 to 23, especially verses 22 and 23, where he says, What do people get for all their toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This, too, is meaningless, better, vapor. Solomon is not about nostalgia here. He's painting a picture to show us that he sees life for what it is. The good and the bad. And he knows where it's headed. And that leads us to the second part of the conundrum. We long to know what this all means, right? 
verse 11, feels like a hard right turn out of nowhere. He has made everything beautiful in its time. How do these work together? (coughs) Frankly, that verse is probably why when we think of the song by the birds, we are nostalgic. Wasn't that such a beautiful thing back then? Why can't it be that way now? I saw my son and I, as we were driving out, saw a 1950-ish Chevy truck on the way out. Beautiful. Here's the thing. I know very well, because my brother has a 1949 Ford pickup truck, that those things were not comfortable, that the ride was terrible, and in order to make it work well, you have to put all new suspension and a better engine and air conditioning and all of those things in it, right? Because the good old days were never really as good as we would like them to have been. And we pick events and feelings that make us feel good about them, and they're familiar, but we don't want to remember the hard parts unless we really work at it, and that is what Solomon is doing. And verse 11 continues, He has also put eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Solomon sees the transience of our lives, the burden of our lives. And yet, and yet we see the beauty that God has created too. Even in those 14 pairs of opposites in verses 1 to 8. We long for eternity on the one hand, but we cannot see on our own what God is up to. Why? Because we're too small. We can never step back far enough to see the scope of what God's doing. That's not who we are. We see the joy and the pain. We see all the things that we want to grab hold of, that we want to keep near to us. Freezing a moment in time, but we can't do it. It's there like smoke or mist rising from the water in the early fall morning. And when the sun gets high enough, it burns away. And at some point or another, all of us asks, what does this all mean? Every one of us does this. Every last person you have ever met, will ever meet, and even the ones that you won't. Human beings seek meaning. It's what we do. We need it. We've all heard the illustrations about concentration camp victims forced to dig a hole one day and fill it the next, and how that endlessly repeating cycle sapped them of hope and strength. We think of a person like Stephen Hawking, arguably the greatest mind of his generation, Famous for the book, A Brief History of Time, and for his search for a theory of everything. And that would become the title of a film that was supposed to chronicle his life. From my understanding, not entirely accurate. He was on a search for meaning. His personal life was more than a little difficult. He had a famously dim view of the future of humanity, which, frankly, 
is not surprising for an atheist. But even Hawking, as brilliant as he was, couldn't see everything. He couldn't step back far enough to really complete a theory of everything. But why do we search? Because that meaning matters. And Solomon shows us over and over again in Ecclesiastes that the answers we come up with on our own never satisfy. They can't satisfy. Because we are not big enough. We can't step back far enough to truly see what God is up to. So what do we do with this conundrum? What does the world around us do? You know, reading Solomon, one might be tempted to just throw up our hands in exasperation and say, okay. But... God has put eternity in our hearts, and we can't escape it, which is our third point. You see, God's answer to the conundrum points to eternity in both the joys and the trials of today. Think of it this way. Every culture around the world, basically without fail, across time, has some idea of what comes next after the death that's coming for us all, an afterlife of gods and the supernatural. As humans, we can't not have some view of this, even if they're completely wrong. And today, we are no different. We create sitcoms like The Good Place. Also, Ted Danson, for another Cheers reference for you. Or... Ghosts is one. And for the uh, scientifically-minded who don't believe in an afterlife, Amazon Prime has you covered with Upload, which is basically you die and your consciousness gets uploaded to a mainframe, and it is an afterlife of sorts. It's not so different. And the fact that we all do this, no matter who we are or when we are, how sophisticated we like to think we are, or how primitive that we think they are, whoever they is, that should tell us something. It should be a clue. And C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity famously wrote about this kind of thing. The Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove the universe a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise, to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy, or echo, or mirage. One might say vapor. You see, Lewis's observation is both profound and completely in keeping with this passage. Because it speaks to both our human condition and the God who created us. 
who allows us to endure it. And we could get being the way that we are, and we have all met that person who is. And frankly, many of us suffer from unacknowledged frustration and maybe even rage at God that we don't want to acknowledge, that we don't want to admit, because we do not want to be that person, right? Why did this happen, God? Instead, we put on our happy face, and we pass along that cliched Bible meme on social media that we think we're supposed to feel. We forget that even John the Baptist doubted when he was in prison, telling his followers, ask him, are you the one? And he knew the answer. He had baptized Jesus and heard the Father's voice, seen the Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove. And I think Solomon undertook this searching, this book, precisely to deal with the hard questions in life and perhaps even the anger in his life. But what Lewis and Solomon both point to is that our situation That those small joys as well as the toil and the suffering in this world is not the end of the story. And it doesn't thwart God's good plan. Instead, in it, he uses those very things, that very transience of life, to show us eternity. To reach even those who don't recognize him. Look again at verses 12 and 13. What does it say? I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This is the gift of God. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Be happy, do good, eat, drink, find satisfaction in all their toil. You see, Solomon has already looked at all these things and called them Hebel chasing after the wind. But this is where we need to remind ourselves that the world is more complicated than understanding this as vanity or futility. It is vapor. But it's not that these things are bad things. It's that they don't last and can't ultimately satisfy. But Solomon tells us they are the gift of God. Listen. These things, the transient things of life, birth, and even death, planting and harvesting, loving and hating, all of these things are pointers, as Lewis just said. It's not wrong to enjoy the gifts of life. In fact, it is wrong not to enjoy them because they are the gifts of God. Notice, though, that there's a difference here between the enjoyment of God's good gift on the one hand and Solomon's pursuits on his own for his own ends in the previous chapter. Verse 12 says, be happy and do good. Verse 13, eat and drink and find satisfaction in our toil. It's not a recipe for a simple self-centered gratification. It's a recognition that our happiness, our experiences of the joys of life that God gives us, cannot be had in isolation. That when we pursue our own pleasure at the expense of others, it doesn't work. It's why we take communion together. It's why Jesus, when he 
gives us the greatest commandment. He says, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. God is first, but we often neglect or forget the significance of the second. Loving the other as ourselves. You see, when we love others this way, we get to experience God's good gifts for ourselves. And if we only focus on ourselves at the expense of others, it doesn't work. And that should not surprise us. I mean, after all, Genesis 2 told us that we were not meant to be alone. That we were meant to be with others. That's how we are created. It's who we are. But this is not the end of the story. You see, the very fact that God grants these transient gifts to us points us, as Lewis said, to something greater. The toils and sufferings of life, the vanities, if you will, themselves point to God. Even if we, like Lewis said of himself, are dragged kicking and screaming. Verses 14 and 15 say, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever is has already been and what has, will be has been before God will call into account. Eternity is in our hearts And we want to know but can't see what God is up to. Yet Solomon recognizes that what God does will endure. As transient or smoke-like that our joys are, so too are our toils. And God has planted eternity in our hearts because as Lewis so profoundly stated, we are meant for something more, for a different world. Solomon says God did this, he set this up and uses this so that people will fear him. He will call the past into account. And we hear fear and calling into account, and what do we hear? Harshness, condemnation. But Solomon doesn't look at it that way. Different world, different culture. Remember, Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it's not simply terror. It's awe. It's recognizing God for who He is. He is not tame, as Lewis would famously say in the Chronicles of Narnia, but He is good. This God, the Creator God, has set eternity in our hearts. Why? Why would He do that? Because this awesome God created us to be with Him. That was the point of John 14 that we read at communion. Why did Jesus come? So that we would be with Him. Why is eternity in our hearts? Because that's what God wants for us, to be with Him. You see, only God is truly eternal. Only He can create And we were meant for something more. Here and now, our joys and our toils, the beauties of our transient lives, every day point us, even those who deny His existence, they point us to something greater, something that our longings cannot satisfy in the here and now, to real meaning. So when we're talking to friends and neighbors, family and even strangers who recognize the fleeting nature of the world, who don't know what to do or where to turn, 
we can have hope. Because just as God has placed eternity in our hearts, He's placed it in their hearts too. You see, they might not see it, they might not acknowledge it, but it's there and they feel it. It's why we are all constantly looking for meaning in the universe, longing for something more. It doesn't matter if it's our relationships or the stories we tell, the beliefs we have, the actions we long for God. That's what He do because it's the way He made us. In Acts 17, verses 26 to 28, Paul is in Athens talking to the philosophers and the Areopagus, and he says something remarkably close to what Solomon says. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the earth, the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. You see, when we see the transience of our lives, we see the beauty in the transient and our transient lives, when we experience its joys as well as its sorrows, it will point us to God, to the hope of a true home. And that quote from Lewis, that's the part that most people quote. But it ends with a challenge, a challenge that will keep us from falling prey, I believe, to life under the sun, and instead allow us to experience life's joys here and now while we are looking forward to something much greater. And this is how he concludes that paragraph. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turn aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country, that true home, being with God, and to help others do the same. That's God's answer to us. That is where Solomon points us.